Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 casualties mount in the ukrainian battle for bakhmut they're actually using air defense missiles to attack ukraine's infrastructure and it, it, it tells you that their their stocks seem to be fairly depleted over 1000 migrants try and storm a port of entry in Paso del Norte. Any reasonable person would look at that and say the border is not secure. Silicon Valley Bank is the largest bank to go down since 2008. That in fact, the recession may have already started. It doesn't look good. This is the Daybreak Insider Podcast. Your first look at today's top stories for Monday, March 13th. I'm Mike Scott. According to reports, Ukrainian troops have killed more than 1,000 Russian soldiers in what may possibly be the bloodiest day in the ongoing war since the Russian invasion of that country over one year ago. In a video shared by the general staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, a spokesperson claimed that Ukrainian forces killed over 1,000 Russian troops on Saturday. Both Ukraine and Russia have claimed that hundreds of enemy troops have been killed over the past 24 hours in the battle for Bakhmut. A Ukrainian military spokesperson said 221 pro-Moscow troops were killed and more than 300 wounded. Meanwhile, Russia's defence ministry said up to 210 Ukrainian soldiers were killed in the broader Donetsk part of the front line. The report suggests that Russia's offensive on Bakhmut essential to the Ukrainian supply chain, isn't going as smoothly as Moscow anticipated. In fact, satellite images show that the once thriving city has now been nearly reduced to rubble due to the intense fighting in the area. This news comes on the heels of reports showing that Russia has begun implementing the use of highly sophisticated hypersonic missiles in their attacks against Russian cities. However, just like previous barrages, it has failed to cause lasting damage to the country's energy network, repair crews quickly restoring power supplies in most regions. Lieutenant Colonel Cedric Layton says that the Russian use of hypersonic missiles isn't good because they are hard for anti-missile systems to catch. I think it's a huge problem uh, because, you know, the systems that we've designed are not good at all against hypersonics. And, uh, you know, part of the big problem that we have is not only does that impact the Ukrainians who are directly involved in this war, of course, but it also impacts us. Uh, We really have to get uh, ahead of ourselves here with developments that would allow us to better track and uh, better uh, take care of hypersonics. Hypersonic weapons, and that's a very difficult thing given the fact that they travel at a minimum five times the speed of sound. So uh, this is a, a critical component uh, for us, for the Ukrainians. 
Meantime, Mark Esper, former U.S. Secretary of Defense under former President Donald Trump, says that while the use of hypersonic missiles isn't great, it does show that Russia is running low on munitions. Well, the sense is what was that the attack in the last 24, 48 hours was retribution for an attack allegedly committed by the Ukrainians within Russia. And so the uh, the Kremlin's response was to hit them hard with 95-plus missiles, to use a range of ballistic missiles, hypersonics, crews, drones. And um, what you find out when you dig a little bit deeper is that they're actually using air defense missiles and anti-ship missiles to attack Ukraine's infrastructure. And it, and it tells you that their, their stocks seem to be fairly depleted. Now, kudos to the Ukrainians. It looks like their energy infrastructure is back online today. And it just shows you the, shows you the resilience of the Ukrainian people when it comes to these unwarranted attacks on their infrastructure. Esper warns that China is also developing hypersonic weapons. They're very hard to defeat. They, they travel at five times the speed of sound, up to 10 times the speed of sound. Very difficult to knock out of the air. It's, it's a challenge that we in the United States military were looking at as well, because we know that China is also developing uh, hypersonic weapons. So uh, it's going to remain a challenge. The fact that they haven't used more of them is surprising. But this, again, calls for the need to Ukraine to get the air defenses it needs. I don't think they still have a Patriot air defense systems. Not that Patriot could defeat hypersonics, but still, there's much more we need to give and provide the Ukrainians in order to beat back the Russian assaults. The former defense secretary goes on to say that the U.S. should move faster to give the weapons to Ukraine that the country needs to fight. We've already committed to providing Patriot. We actually have Ukrainian soldiers uh, reportedly in Oklahoma training on the system. But it takes time to train. It takes time to deliver the systems. Uh, another European ally is providing systems as well. But again, these were things that the Ukrainians were asking for months and months ago. And it's a shame that they, they don't have them yet. Same goes for tanks and F-16s. Esper weighs in on the use of F-16 fighter jets by Ukrainian pilots and says that many U.S. generals believe they should have the jets. President Biden said a few weeks ago, no, 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 no. Uh, we now understand that Ukrainian pilots are being evaluated here in the United States to do so. There are also reports coming out of the Munich Security Conference that the United States top general in Europe, uh, Chris Cavoli, uh, the Supreme Allied Commander, told lawmakers that, yes, F-16s would make a difference for the Ukrainians. And it's, it's obvious. They need a platform to conduct uh, uh, strikes uh, against uh, Russian elements in Ukraine. It would very much help with a Ukrainian counteroffensive that hopefully will be launched sometime in the coming months. But sure, they need advanced fighter aircraft. Despite earlier reports that Russia's Wagner forces made gains in the area, the Institute for the Study of War reports that troops did not advance on Saturday. One U.S. official who spoke anonymously estimated that as many as 30,000 have been killed in the assault since the start of the war. 2024 Republican presidential campaign activity is already heating up in Iowa, the leadoff caucus state. Daybreak Insider's White House correspondent Greg Clugston takes a look at what's ahead in the coming 2024 campaign season. The two Republicans leading the early presidential polls already have their sights on Iowa. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is not yet a formal candidate, made his first visit to the state on Friday. He's a top-tier presidential prospect viewed as a rival to Donald Trump. 
On Monday, the former president pays a visit to Iowa for the first time since announcing his re-election bid. Several other GOP presidential hopefuls have also made early stops in Iowa. Greg Clugston reporting. Over the weekend, a large group of at least 1,000 migrants stormed the Paso del Norte port of entry bridge along the U.S.-Mexico border in an attempt to enter the U.S. Happening right now, multiple local agencies are responding to Paso del Norte Bridge. You can see a large group of people blocking traffic coming from Juarez side. A Mexican publication, El Diario, is reporting it's a group of migrants trying to make their way into the U.S. U.S. Customs and Border Patrol authorities have confirmed to the media that a situation is currently happening at the port of entry. CBP authorities and El Paso police have also made a large presence in downtown El Paso, approximately two miles from the southern border. On social media, many videos were captured and posted showing CPB officers trying to stop migrants from rushing the border and then swimming across the Rio Grande. The RNC's Rapid Response Director joined the Salem Radio Network and said there's a disconnect between the Biden administration, border policy, and reality. I think it really just shows the disconnect between Joe Biden, his administration, and the reality that's just not at the it's not only at the border, it's everywhere. Uh, we're seeing really uh, the number one killer of young Americans now are overdoses, which has been fueled by this surge of synthetic fentanyl that's come over the border. So securing the border is essential in combating that. Uh, but yet when Mayorkas is asked about it, he, he says that the border is secure. But then when asked what is his definition of secure, he can't even give it. He can't give a definition of secure. And I, I think any reasonable person looking at this that is seeing a record amount of fentanyl coming over this border, a record amount of fentanyl poisoning our communities, a record number of illegal immigrants crossing the border and escaping into this country, over 1.2 million since Joe Biden took office. Any reasonable person would look at that and say the border is not secure. The spokesman outlined the differences between the successes of the Trump-era policies and the failures, he believes, of the Biden administration on the border. Well, when Joe Biden came into office, he actually had a working border security process. You had a a huge decline in the number of encounters. Those are people that cross over the border and oftentimes turn themselves into Border Patrol. You also had less gotaways, which are people that cross the border illegally and purposefully avoid detention by law enforcement. So you can assume if they don't want to be detained by law enforcement, there's some malicious intent for the people crossing the border there. You had a, a, a... huge decline in the number of encounters. You had a system that was working in a process that was actually processing people and having legitimate claims of asylum examined. The spokesperson also says that the Biden administration, in his opinion, is undermining border security. Then you have Biden coming into office, who on day one rips up many of the deals that Trump had put into place in order to secure the border, decides to undermine immigration law enforcement, leading to record low deportations, decides to tie the hands of border officials, decides instead of having the backs of border law enforcement to smear border law enforcement every single chance he gets. And the result is you go from this massive decline in encounters in Godaways to a huge spike. In fact, Mm -hmm. the most on record. There are the most illegal encounters at the border on record and 1.2 million Godaways that have escaped 
into this country. So basically the side-by-side is you had a working process when Biden came into office, and right now the process has completely collapsed. Meanwhile, CBP officials, including members of the Mobile Field Force, implemented port-hardening measures at the Paso del Norte International Bridge at 1.30 today, temporarily preventing the northbound flow of migrant traffic on the Mexican side of the border as they tried to approach the international boundary posing a potential threat to make a mass entry. The CBP response included the deployment of physical barriers to restrict entry. As of 5 p.m., there is no traffic processing occurring at the Paso del Norte Bridge, end quote. Authorities said two other temporary disruptions occurred at the Stanton Crossing and at the Bridge to America, causing law enforcement to set up barricades there as well. Wolverine state lawmakers want to try and toughen gun laws. Daybreak Insider's Jason Walker has more on this developing story in East Lansing. Michigan Democrats poised to bring an 11-bill package to the legislature that would implement safe storage laws, universal background checks, and extreme risk protection orders, also known as red flag laws. A mass shooting on the Michigan State University campus recently and a 2021 shooting at Oxford High School pushed the Democrats to act fast on that legislation. But state Republicans say the current gun laws in Michigan are just fine. They need to be better enforced, not altered. Jason Walker reporting. Actress Jane Fonda is making news, and it's not because of the Oscars. On Friday, the actress was on The View and seemed to suggest the way to combat the rise of pro-life legislation was to murder Republican lawmakers, at which point The View host tried to laugh it off, saying Fonda was just kidding. Besides besides marching and, and protesting, what else do you suggest? Well, well, it doesn't happen murder. overnight. It's not a miraculous. <laughs> what did you say? Murder. <laughs> She's kidding. Wait a second. She's just now, kidding. Don't say that. Fox News reporter Will Kane says that even though her co-host tried to make light of her comments, he's not buying the excuse of Fonda joking around. I don't know if that's an awkward laugh at the horrendousness of what she had to suggest. I mean, I, I don't. She sort of hit terminal velocity. There's nothing worse you can say, right? Like, you, you know, I know that in modern America, like, the, 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 the most grievous of sin is to accuse someone of racism, right? How about murder? <laughs> she just suggested for her political opponents, murder. I mean, it's hard to get any worse. And now, uh, she did give a statement, by the way, to Fox News Digital. She said, well, women's reproductive rights are a very serious issue. And extremely important to me, my comment on The View was obviously made in jest. My body language and tone made it clear to those in the room. I don't think so, actually. And to anyone watching, that I was using hyperbole to make a point. No, no, I don't think that was clear. Fonda has since tried to walk back her statement, saying it was just hyperbole. Silicon Valley Bank was one of the largest names in lending in the world of technology. That is, until this past Friday, when it became the largest bank to fail since the 2008 financial crisis. 
News today that reminded so many of us of the unsettling times that came with those banking failures back in 2008. Tonight, a bank has been seized by state and federal regulators. This is the biggest bank failure since 2008. And this evening, so many customers demanding to know, where is our money? Now, this bank, the Silicon Valley Bank, a favorite of the tech industry, Customers today rushing to withdraw their money, finding branch offices closed and ATMs not working. According to reports, Silicon Valley's closing has put nearly $1.75 billion in customer funds in control of the FDIC. As a result, the FDIC has created a new bank to hold deposits and assets of Silicon Valley until today, when the new bank will start to issue checks for customers. Home Depot's co-founder Bernie Marcus weighed in on the closing, saying that it is a warning for everyday Americans. And maybe the American people will finally wake up and understand that we're living in very tough times, that, in fact, the recession may have already started, who knows, but it doesn't look good. Marcus points the finger at what he believes to be a focus on woke banking policies in the financial sector, which led in part to Silicon Valley's demise. I think that the administration has pushed many of these banks into more concern about global warming than they do about shareholder return. Uh, And these banks are badly run because everybody is focused on diversity and all of the woke issues and not concentrating on one thing they should, which is shareholder returns. Uh, instead of protecting the shareholders and their, and their employees, uh, they're more concerned about the social policies. The Home Depot co-founder said that the Biden administration is obtuse when it comes to the country's economic health. It doesn't portend to be something good. Uh, and the Fed keeps raising rates and inflation keeps going in the wrong direction. It's not staying where it should be. People are struggling, uh, Neil. Uh, People can't pay their bills. They can't fill their tanks with gas. And if you think that's a good sign, I don't think it is. And we have an administration that's obtuse to this. They just keep talking about the great times and how good it is. It's not good. And somebody with a sane head has to come in and understand that you can't do two things. Number one, you can't keep raising rates. You can't keep inflation as strong as it is. And you can't tax people more than they are. Gas prices are again on the rise. Daybreak Insider's Jackie Quinn takes a look at the new numbers just ahead of spring break travel. AAA says the national average price for a gallon of regular gasoline is eight cents higher than last week at $3.47 a gallon. Analysts think that this is a short-term hike since there's a recent drop in demand and in the cost of crude. Although prices are up from last week, they're down significantly from this time last year when gas cost more than $4.30 a gallon. There is some upward pressure, though, on pricing in the future due to the switch to the more expensive summer blend of gasoline that reduces emissions in higher heat. I'm Jackie Quinn. An anti-Nazi heroine has died. Daybreak Insider's Keith Peters has more on the heroic life of Trauta LaFrance. 
the last known survivor of a German group known as the White Rose that actively resisted the Nazis has died. Trautel of Friends was 103. German President Frank Walter Steinmeier expressed his condolences to her family Friday. He described LaFrenz as a wonderful and immeasurably brave woman. An obituary posted in the Charleston Post and Courier said that LaFrenz died on March 6th. LaFrenz moved to Munich, where she became acquainted with fellow students who were opposed to the Nazis and months later took part in the White Rose's risky efforts to distribute leaflets denouncing Hitler and his regime. Keith Peters reporting. And finally... With inclement weather striking parts of the U.S., an 81-year-old man was forced to survive being stuck in a snowbank for nearly a week. How did he do it? By eating snacks that he packed for himself, candy, croissants, and a biscotti. Jerry Jorrett thought he could beat out a snowstorm that was set to hit his route between Big Pine, California and Gardnerville, Nevada. And boy, was he wrong. 81-year-old Jerry Jorrett set out from his house in Big Pine, California on February 24th to return to his family home in Gardnerville, Nevada. Normally, that's about a three-hour trip. According to his grandson, Christian, Jorrett thought he could beat a coming snowstorm. He was wrong. So the snow starts coming down, and it really piles up as much as three feet. But here is when his survival instincts kick in. Jure is a mathematician and former NASA employee, so he stays with his car. He conserves the vehicle's gas and battery, only turning it on for short periods of time to warm up. He's rationing his snacks and occasionally rolling down his car window to eat some snow. But even then, the rescue almost did not happen. A CHP chopper pilot spots what he initially thinks is a large rock, but then takes another look and he sees the SUV and Jure's arm waving out the window. He was flown to a hospital where he was checked out. So throughout all of this, he was only wearing a light windbreaker. Not good. And I can bet you guys are reevaluating the kind of snacks. <laughs> yes. The Inyo County Sheriff's Office received a call for a missing person about four days after Jurette set out to return home. However, because of the bad weather, a search and rescue team was unable to begin the search for another few days until the weather cleared up. Six days after Jared had tried to make his way home, police found the elderly man by identifying the signal from his cell phone, and he was rescued. A California Highway Patrol helicopter spotted Jared's car buried under nearly three feet of snow that had fallen and then transported him to medical care. Jarrett's grandson, Christian, recounts his grandfather's ordeal. He had checked the Caltrans website to see if the roads were clear, and it gave him the green light. But um, as he left about 30 minutes from the house, I believe he slid off the road and got stuck on the side, and that's when the blizzard hit. Christian also says that he believes the power of prayer helped his grandfather's rescue. The search team was supposed to go out days prior, but the weather was so awful they couldn't get a helicopter in there. And, you know, days were going by where they couldn't get to him. And uh, finally, you know, I prayed about it hard and uh, prayed that the weather would change. And the next day, it was the most beautiful uh, day we've had in weeks. Christian goes on to say that despite a little dehydration, his grandfather is actually doing fine. 
he was incredible health. You know, the vitals were looking great. I think he was just mildly dehydrated. That was it. His family was even told that he had a smile on his face. The whole helicopter ride to the hospital, his first time inside a chopper. Subscribe to the Daybreak Insider Podcast at Apple or Google Podcast, Spotify, or SalemPodcastNetwork.com. Get our companion Daybreak Insider newsletter each morning at DaybreakInsider.com. Ongoing coverage of breaking news and commentary at SRNNews.com and TownHall.com. Thanks for starting your day with us. I'm Mike Scott. 